Okay, so the question was, what is the difference between circulating glucose and hemoglobin A1C? All right. First of all, what is glucose? A6 carbon sugar, which would make what kind of shape? A hexagon, more or less. All right. Where does this live in the blood? No, where does it live in the blood? Say again? Plasma. So it is in the plasma and it's dissolved, right? What happens if you put sugar in, uh, in water? Sugar in water. That's the cockroach in Men in Black wearing an Edgar suit. <laughs> All right. Now, hemoglobin, hemoglobin A1C. Where does hemoglobin live? All right, sorry, what is it, first of all? Okay. It's a carrier molecule that's made up of protein. So where does, and it's shaped like this. Okay, where does that guy live? It lives inside red blood cells. So let's draw a red blood cell around it. It's a nice red blood cell. All right. When you measure glucose, circulating glucose, what you're talking about is you're talking about taking plasma, the water part of blood, and looking at how much is dissolved in it. What's our normal value? About 70 to 99. Now, if it's between 100 and 125, what's that called? Pre-diabetes. Now, what are those numbers good for? What, what kind of circulating plasma glucose? Fasting. fasting. Now, fasting means no food for how long? At least eight hours, which typically means first thing in the morning, assuming they haven't had a midnight snack. Sometimes it's called FBG, fasting blood glucose. Now, if you take it two hours after a, a patient is eaten, what's that called? Postprandial glucose. If you take it any time, what do we call that? Just any old time. Casual or random. Now, in all of these cases, what are you measuring? the amount of circulating glucose in the plasma. It's dissolved in the plasma. Are you going to get different numbers by measuring at these different times? Depending on what the patient's eaten and depending on their metabolism, you'll get different numbers. Is that the oral glucose testing? That's different. Oh. Yeah. With, with um, oral glucose tolerance testing, the uh, OGTT, there you're going to drink the cup of corn syrup and you're going to measure your blood sugar is going to go up and then you measure how far down it goes and how long it takes it etc um, all you need to know about this is that this is used to screen for 
for insulin resistance or prediabetes. You can also use it in pregnant women to uh, test for prenatal or uh, gestational diabetes. So even if a person has a normal fasting plasma glucose, they might have impaired glucose tolerance. So when you give them that big cup, they're abnormal. Insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. All right, now let's talk about the hemoglobin A1C. Now, what, what's on the inside of, what's on the outside of this cell? This is a red blood cell. What's on the outside of it? Plasma. And what's in that plasma? Glucose. Now, is there glucose inside the cell? Yes. I mean, so there's glucose inside the cell too. Now, will there be more glucose in the, inside the cell if there's more glucose outside the cell? Yeah, so the more there is outside, the more there's going to be inside, right? Now, when, when you spill sugar on the floor, what happens to the floor? It gets sticky. So some of these glucose molecules are going to stick to the hemoglobin. Now, we've only drawn one hemoglobin inside this cell, but how many hemoglobin molecules are actually inside of it? Is it four? Are you sure? There's four heme molecules in one hemoglobin. There's hundreds of hemoglobin molecules inside that one cell. So some of them are going to get sticky. Some of them are not. The amount of hemoglobin that gets sticky is going to depend on how much glucose is in that cell. And how much glucose is inside the cell is going to depend on how much glucose is outside the cell. So what we can do is we can take a sample of blood and we can take these red blood cells and break them apart, crack them open like eggs, and we can count the little hemoglobin molecules. And we can go, all right, this one has sugar stuck to it. That's an A1C. This one does not. That's hemoglobin A. What does A stand for? Adult. So A is normal. A1C is sugarified. So normal, normal, normal. One, two, three, four, five. All right, five in this case. So in this case, we had five total, and one of them was stickified. So what percentage would that be? One-fifth, and one-fifth as a percentage is 20%. Now, this patient would be dead in real life, but this is, I just don't want to draw that many of them. Okay, so in this case, you had 20% were sticky. Now, how long does it take for this cell to live and die? 120 days on average. So when you measure the amount of hemoglobin that has sugar stuck to it, you're getting an average of about three months. Three months is less than 120 days, if you must know. Three months is 90 days, because you assume that not all of it's going to be sticky. Now, this is a way that you can tell over a longer period of time how 
a patient has been doing. Because when you check fasting, you're checking at one moment in time, right? Not. When you check a postprandial, you're checking at one moment in time. When you check a casual, you're checking at one moment in time. When you check a hemoglobin A1C, you're seeing the average results over several months of time. So hemoglobin A1C is a way to see how consistent the patient has been over three, three or well, somewhere between two and four months, on average about three months. Does that make sense? All right, so how do we diagnose diabetes? Which one of these things? So we do it by plasma, and the best way is by fasting. If fasting is higher than 125, we call it diabetes. If postprandial is higher than 200, that's considered diabetes. So uh, for Joe and Anthony who are eating the airheads the other day and then their blood sugar was 160, that's okay. If you take a casual, which means the patient hasn't eaten lately, but you know they, they're not fasting, if it's above 160, that's considered diabetes. The best way to diagnose diabetes is this one right here, fasting. But any of these others are also considered diabetes. Now, if we don't use hemoglobin A1C to diagnose diabetes, what do we use? Sorry, what do we use it for? Um, not exactly. So if we don't use hemoglobin A1C to diagnose diabetes, what do we use it for? Yeah, to see how well we're controlling their blood sugar. And that could be with insulin or, in the case of type 1, always with insulin, but in the case of type 2, that could be with, say again? Okay, it could be with oral hypoglycemics like, give me some names, metformin, okay, secretagogues, cephalomyureas, metaglinides, what else? What else could we use to control their blood sugar? Diet, exercise, weight loss. Okay. So all of those things together will impact the A1C. So the higher the A1C, the less controlled they are on average. Is that? Only the 125. Oh, for, A oh, for A1C. Um, what did I give you in the notes? Okay. All right. Okay, well, you do need to know that if a patient is above... Seven and a half, they're uncontrolled. And is that what I say in your notes? Above seven. Okay, above seven. Above seven, the patient is uncontrolled. If the patient goes above eight, they're really bad. Like eight is, you know, living in the 250s or 300s all the time. Well, but the reason it's high 
is because their insulin isn't working properly or they don't have enough. It's a percentage. 7% of A1C. So you need, yes, 7%. Because remember, we calculated a percentage. A1C. Right. If 7% of the hemoglobin is A1C, that's a sign that the patient is uncontrolled. Below 7, you're okay. That's all you need to know about that. So A1C is long-term and it needs to be less than 7%. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. I'll try and answer shorter. So, um, so anyway, any other questions? Okay, so let's go, let's start from the very beginning, a very good place to start. Genetics. You know, you don't want genetics, you want diabetes? What? Okay, diabetes, or no, genetics. All right. Okay. Most diseases, are they genetic only or are they a combination of genetic and inheritance? Okay. Now, um, when we say genetics, what is it that determines a person's genetics? Okay, what does heredity mean? Okay, your parents, what does that mean? Okay, your parents' DNA. Now, what does DNA do? What, or first of all, what is it? Okay, deoxyribonucleic acid. What does that mean, dude? It controls it. Makes proteins for whatever your body. Okay. So it's kind of like a tape that has a program on it, and the program is expressed by little molecules called nucleotides. Those nucleotides will in turn tell your body how to make proteins. So the whole purpose of DNA is to make proteins. The whole purpose of DNA is to make proteins. And where do those proteins get made? In the ribosome. In order to make our protein, we have to first unzip it, and then we have to make a copy. What's that copy called? Messenger RNA or mRNA. And then it goes to the ribosome, and the messenger RNA is going to get matched up with transfer RNA. Those transfer RNAs are going to have amino acids stuck to them. When you get two amino acids next to each other, you bond them together with with peptide bonds. And so you're going to get a polypeptide. And that polypeptide will then fold in on over itself and become a protein. Now, is the protein necessarily ready to go? No. What has to happen first? It has to be packaged and sometimes cut. So the example that we used later on was this little molecule right here. What's that? It's proinsulin. So proinsulin is kind of like an E-shaped loop. And before it becomes active, we have to break it here and here. So we're left with this and that. So this guy is called peptide and is it active or inactive? So what's going to happen to it? It's going to float around till it goes back to the liver and the liver is going to chop it up and reuse it or pee it out. 
the uh, amino acids, not the protein, because that would be bad. And then this guy is active insulin. Now, what happens if there's a mistake in this genetic code and you can't produce a protein you need to produce? Well, that is a mutation. It would be would, could be a cause of that. But what happens if, like, say, this guy got switched out or got deleted altogether? Okay, so you would produce a protein that, that doesn't work. Now, that protein has two possibilities, possibility one and possibility two. What are the two possibilities? Okay, well, possibility one is that that new abnormal protein causes a disease. The other possibility is that if you don't have enough of the protein you want, the presence of the new one causes disease, or the absence of the one you're supposed to have can cause disease. Those are your two possibilities. So one possibility is this new protein, the abnormal protein, causes the disease. Or, the other possibility is that the new protein doesn't cause a disease, but the lack of the protein you should have causes a disease. And it's so option one, where the presence causes a disease, we call that autosomal dominant. dominant. And then the second case, where missing the one you do need causes a disease, that's called autosomal recessive. recessive. And why do we call them dominant and recessive? How does DNA come? The animals, they came on, they came on by two. Two Z, two Zs, yes. All right. You've never heard that. <laughs> Noah and the Ark. It's the Noah and the Ark song. It takes forever. It's... All right. So pro or DNA comes in twos, pairs. So you got how many chances to get your protein right? Two, at least two. So you got two chances. Now, if you have option one, where the presence of this disease causes it, if you've got your abnormal protein here, you're going to have the disease no matter what. No matter what this other one is, you're going to have the disease. So here we have an abnormal protein, normal protein. If the abnormal protein causes a disease, you only need one allele to be that disease in order to cause it. Does that make sense? Okay, so having, having the killer protein is a death sentence, eventually anyway. The other possibility is that we're missing a normal one. So that would be called recessive. So in the case of cystic fibrosis, what is the gene that's missing? It's the, it's the gene for chloride gates. So you don't have gates that work, but you've got another allele and if that allele is normal, you're going to have enough to get by. So that person would be called a, a carrier. Indominant, are there carriers? All right, so what is, the, uh, what is the major dominant disease we need to know about? Huntington's. Huntington's. And we're not going to go through all the Punnett squares again because we've already done that. 
What's, what are the uh, major autosomal uh, recessives that we need to know? Cystic fibrosis, Cystic fibrosis. Sickle, cell. sickle cell anemia, PKU. PKU. So what's the problem in sickle cell anemia? Uh, we don't make good, we're missing the cell that makes good hemoglobin. In sickle cell, we're missing, we're missing a, um, a, a gene that will make hemoglobin properly. So when a person gets cold, the person with sickle cell anemia's hemoglobin will change shape and kill the red blood cell, make it look like a sickle. In cystic fibrosis, we're missing the chloride gate, so a person will have trouble. They're going to have a trouble excreting and secreting anything. So they're going to have trouble secreting surfactant. They're going to have trouble secreting mucus. As a result, what's going to happen to their lungs? Build up of mucus and become a breeding ground for bacteria. Just like that. They're also going to have trouble secreting the enzymes necessary for digestion. As a result, they're going to have malnutrition, which is why people with cystic fibrosis, fibrosis tend to be skinny. Nowadays, we can supplement those, and they don't have the same problem as they used to. Um, PKU, what are they missing? They're not missing phenylalanine. The, the ability to break down phenylalanine. As a result, they're going to build up phenyl ketones in their body, which are going to cause the patient to go, well, to become retarded if it happens to them as a child. If it has, happens to them as an adult, it gives them a bad headache and makes them sick, but they're okay. So it's more important for chillins. All right. Um, what, is, what is a polygenic inheritance? Sure. Possibly, that's, yeah. And that's what the, the bell curve is right. representing? Yes. Okay. Now, in a case of like um, cystic, cystic fibrosis, you do have a bell curve. It's just a very small bell curve. 50% are carriers, 50% are normal, and 50% have the disease. As you get to polygenic, it gets bigger with more possibilities. All right, and what are most diseases? They're not either of those. They are multifactorial. Just that. Yeah, just a bell curve. Yeah. And that the ones in the middle are the most common. The extremes are less common. All right. And that's it for genetics.